I'm Mike, and you are listening to the Hardtack Military History Podcast. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the producer. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. Welcome to another episode of Hard Tack, the second AWOL episode in the show's history. If you are new to Hard Tack and are not sure what AWOL means, AWOL is a military acronym meaning absent without official leave. Though the topic for today's episode involves a U.S. Army intelligence officer making it military history, this is a shift from the usual content featured in Hard Tack. It also gives me an opportunity to blend military history with a genre that I enjoy, true crime. I had been away much longer than I had planned, but I'm really glad to get this episode pushed out. I found the research process really enjoyable, but much more of a rabbit hole than I had originally anticipated. This episode will be longer than usual, but given the gap between episode 30 and now this one, I'm glad for it, so I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to check out the Hardtack socials found via Linktree in the episode description or by searching Hardtack on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can also visit the website and leave a comment at hardtackpod.com. Don't forget to drop a review on whichever platform you use to consume your Hardtack and hit that subscribe button. Your ratings and reviews help expose the show to more listeners. If you are interested in contributing to Hardtack's production, check out the Hardtack Patreon. Just search Hardtack Podcast. Alternatively, you can contribute through our host site, Anchor.fm by Spotify. All right, let's get into some Hardtack. First off, multiple sources were consulted for this episode, though the majority of research was found in one book, Widows by authors William R. Corson, Susan B. Trento, and Joseph J. Trento, was published in 1989 by McDonald and Company. It is a thick, hardback book, which smells amazing for the bibliophiles out there, 34 years later. The book explores the careers of three intelligence officers, and in the author's own words, quote, We wrote this book to try to show the citizens of the West just how difficult and demanding a task it is to protect ourselves from the Soviet intelligence services. Our point is that sometimes in doing this job, we seem to forget what makes our system different from the Soviet system. That's when we get in trouble as a nation. That's when we become a threat to ourselves. End quote. It should be noted that there was a scathing review of this book found on Amazon by a woman named Denise claiming to be the daughter of a CID agent who investigated the Ralph Siegler case. There's no way to confirm the accuracy of her claim, but I thought it interesting and wanted to mention this at the beginning as I find it important that we remain unbiased and look at history from all perspectives. In the review, Denise wrote, quote, I just came across this book when I was doing a Google search. I cannot recommend this book because the author did not do his research or rather accurate research. Denise goes on to claim, 
My father was one of the CID agents who investigated the Ralph Siegler case. I heard much about the case when it appeared on Unsolved Mysteries. My father was furious they did not talk to him before airing the show. If he had talked to my father, he would have learned why Siegler committed suicide and the evidence that led to that finding. At the time of the airing, which coincided with the release of this book, Dad still had his notes from the case and would have gladly shared them with both. One of the reasons why Dad was so furious when he saw the show and read the book. I could go on and on. Let's just say, Siegler wasn't the hero of the book, and many people want to make him out to be. End quote. Look, take from that what you will. But keep in mind that Cold War area espionage remains a veiled topic, one of which is easy to romanticize, especially when there is a personal connection to the topic. Bias clearly becomes an issue. We likely will never have all of the details, and so we must discern the truth for ourselves. If you would not guess based on the title, all three men discussed in the book Widows, John Arthur Paisley, Nick Sheridan, and the subject of this episode, Ralph Siegler, experienced an early demise. Due to my unending curiosity, I could not ignore the other two men when looking through this book, and I've decided that both Paisley and Sheridan will be covered in future AWOL episodes of Hardtack. There's just too much intrigue, Cold War espionage, and CIA involvement not to look further into it. For now, this is Hardtack Episode 31, Widows Part 1, Who Killed Ralph Siegler. Standing 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighing just 145 pounds, the hazel-eyed Catholic man of Eastern European descent fit the profile the FBI and Army Intelligence Department were looking for in 1966 for a special assignment. The brown-haired, spectacled man spoke Czech and German, had an understanding of Russian and several other Slavic languages. More than that, their man had proven himself to be of quick wit, assertive, and confident in his capabilities. His memory was sharp, and his recall abilities the sort you may expect from any fictional sleuth like James Bond or Sherlock Holmes, though the FBI was not looking for their Soviet-era James Bond. The special mission involved the right man with the right nerve and background to walk into the Soviet embassy in Mexico City and be used as bait. With a reputation as a hard man, married to a European woman, and having a mother still living behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia, Rudolf Siegler had the personality and the background that made him the ideal candidate for the job as a double agent. Unfortunately, the assignment also resulted in his untimely and still questionable death. Born Rudolf Siegler on May 24, 1928 in Hrtnik, Czechoslovakia, Ralph Siegler was left with his mother and his city of birth after his father and uncles moved to the United States in pursuit of better opportunities. During his absence, Ralph's father learned that his mother had begun an affair with another man. So, when Ralph was eight, his father returned to his home country and collected his son, bringing him, along with his sister Anne, with him permanently to the U.S. Ralph arrived in the U.S. on September 1, 1936 and found himself in the struggles of the Great Depression not to mention the worsening situation in Europe in the years leading up to the World War II. It goes without saying that as an Eastern European immigrant in 1930s America, Ralph grew up impoverished. His father, Alex, was a coal miner in Pennsylvania, at least when work was available. 
On the side, Alex Siegler worked as a butcher and sausage maker for just $2 a day. Such was the life of an emigrant to the United States during the Depression. Alex was a hardworking man and his stubborn work ethic paid off. He eventually bought a home and turned it into a small farm. But more importantly, he inculcated his work ethic into Ralph. Ralph began work early picking up food waste from hospitals and hotels near his home to feed the livestock on the farm. Ralph spent the day in studies at school and would resume farm work in the afternoons. For a young man, Ralph worked hard. To give you an idea of the sort of man Ralph was, his employment records show his home address as his place of work, and his father was listed as his supervisor. As Ralph grew up, he began to buck against his father's harsh and rigorous leadership. And so, at the age of 17, he dropped out of high school and ran away from home with a friend. His next decision was to join the United States Army on March 19, 1946, just less than a year after World War II, and during a time when U.S. relations with the Soviet Union were already beginning to strain. Siegler's first duty station was in Berlin, not too far from his birthplace, and his mother. In October of the same year, the young soldier took a train to Czechoslovakia to find his mother. The reception was not what he had hoped for or could have imagined. His mother was living with a Russian soldier. Ralph stayed just one day and left disappointed, a sentiment that he carried for the rest of his life, going so far as to later tell his wife, I want nothing to do with my mother. In 1949, after serving his initial contract, and after his father was involved in a terrible car accident, Ralph received an honorable discharge at the rank of corporal and returned home to care for his father. Just eight months later, now age 23, Ralph re-enlisted and returned to Germany, but this time to Stuttgart. Here, Ralph met his future wife, Ilse Margarete Oler. For the sake of time, I won't get too much into their back-and-forth relationship, so bottom line up front, she was distrustful of Americans, but Ralph spoke German and was determined. He was smitten with the slender, blue-eyed, strawberry-blonde woman he came to marry just two years later. Both returned to the U.S. after Ralph once again left the Army at the rank of sergeant. However, Ralph was still an immigrant and had not obtained his citizenship. He now had a wife to care for, and she was not exactly happy in Pennsylvania. Again, Ralph joined the Army, attending training at Fort Benning, Georgia, now known as Fort Moore, and shortly after received his citizenship in September of 1955. It was then that he legally changed his name from the European Rudolph to Ralph. After his training in Georgia, Ralph and Ilse were transferred to Panama, where they spent three years and their daughter Karen was born. The Sieglers desired to return to Germany, and in hopes of getting stationed there, Ralph re-enlisted in Georgia in 1960. However, the two were assigned to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, shortly after. Disappointed, Ralph gambled on a reassignment, and while on leave, visited the Pentagon in D.C. The gamble paid off and the Sieglers were stationed at Bitburg, Germany for two years during the Berlin Wall Crisis. During his time in Germany, Ralph became involved in top-secret work. In 1965, the Sieglers were again put on assignment, and again to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. It was here that Ralph Siegler was recruited by the FBI for a special assignment. So what was the assignment? After all, we're talking about Cold War-era operations in the 1960s. Well, the U.S. had concerns about two Russian agencies. One was the main directorate of the general staff of the armed forces of the Russian Federation. A real mouthful. Luckily, we can refer to them from this point forward as the GRU. Then, of course, we had the better-known Committee for State Security, or the KGB. 
which when the full name is stated in Russian is well beyond my language skills, so I'm not even going to attempt it. What caused the FBI to begin seeking candidates for special assignments against these two agencies was increased Soviet efforts against the United States from Mexico. With the United States and Mexico sharing a border, it is fair that intelligence threats close to home were of little comfort. Naturally, this led the FBI to ask some critical questions. What would the operational capabilities of the Soviet Union be if given a foothold in Mexico? Would official personnel be sent to Mexico to handle agents, or would they use an illegal? How should we respond? Do we, in turn, use official personnel or commit our own illegal? U.S. counterintelligence had their work cut out for them. Enter the double agent, or, in this case, Ralph Siegler. Were the FBI to use a properly profiled American asset, there was the security of knowing that their agent would be an uncertainty for the Soviets. The uncertainty was a double-edged sword for the Soviets, as real American military traders, known as walk-ins, were quite literally walking into Soviet embassies across the globe as willing assets. For the FBI and a double agent, this would appear normal to the KGB. The FBI and military intelligence had more questions to ask themselves. Firstly, what was most beneficial to the Soviets? Should their man be a civilian? And if so, of what standing? What level should the individual have access to national secrets and top secret information? It was determined that a military man of some experienced rank, though nothing of seemingly great consequence, was best. In reviewing his experience, prior assignments, proximity to Mexico at his current station at Fort Bliss, and his background before the military, Ralph Siegler was the obvious choice, but there were some hang-ups. Army Intelligence Headquarters out of Maryland wanted to front the operation. However, the FBI was unwilling to consent. The director at the time was none other than J. Edgar Hoover. What resulted was an operation run by the FBI, simply supported by military intelligence through the United States Army. Though selected, Ralph did not begin operating as a double agent within what anyone would call a short amount of time. Double agents are tricky. The nature of the job alone leaves handlers wondering if their agent is still loyal. Trust is an issue. After selection, the FBI and Army Intelligence screened and worked on Siegler's clearance for a decade. Ralph was not approached until he was 38 years of age, and once approached, quickly showed interest in the job. He was interviewed for several hours, and the data from the interview was taken back to FBI headquarters for analysis. It was then that Siegler was assigned a handler, Special Agent Francis Joe Prasik. He also spoke Czech, and he and Siegler connected quick and from the beginning. It was decided that Siegler would continue to operate out of Fort Bliss. Being an Army post and perhaps feeling slighted by the FBI's overall ownership of the operation, Army Intelligence also assigned a man to look after Siegler. That man was Carlos Zapata. Zapata's current role at Bliss was to advise the commanding general of the post on intelligence matters. On December 9, 1966, Ralph Siegler was formally recognized as a double agent and informed of his new role. With it, Ralph was promoted to warrant officer. The new position was something Ralph took seriously from the beginning, and this he made clear to his wife. Ilse was forced to sign papers, unaware of what she was signing, as she was given no opportunity to read them, and told that her husband was now an army courier and would be gone sporadically for days at a time. Ralph made it clear to Ilse that she was to keep her questions to herself. 
Yosei recalled her husband telling her, quote, I think I'm doing something good for my country. All I'm asking is you to stay out. Don't ask me any questions. Don't be nosy. Don't tell your friends anything. All I want is for you to stay out. End quote. Ralph had one more meeting with his handlers, and then his work began. The initial moves of the operation were simple, so much so that it seemed almost rudimentary. Siegler, codenamed Graphic Image, was simply to walk into the Russian embassy in Mexico City and offer his services. But questions surrounded Siegler's ability. Was he really the cold, hard man he appeared to be? After all, in the weeks leading up to the operation, Siegler never once asked questions specific to his safety. He remained operationally minded. But what of his own biases? Would his self-professed absolute distaste for Russians be evident? Under pressure, would Siegler crack? There was only one way to find out. In December 1966, Ralph Siegler entered the Russian embassy and informed KGB agents that he was there to deliver stolen intelligence documents specific to the United States and their missile development. Though suspicious, especially with a CIA station directly across the street from their own embassy in Mexico, the Russians had quotas to fill when it came to their informants. The KGB agent in charge quickly escorted Siegler out of the back of the embassy into a car where they hit him under a rug and spirited him away. Siegler performed admirably. It was the 1960s. Tensions between the two nations were high, and Russian perceptions of Americans were that they were capitalistic, greedy, and easy to buy. Events during the 60s later proved this viewpoint accurate, as many Americans sold national security secrets to Russia. Siegler played on the belief. He complained that the army did not respect his talents, that they did not acknowledge his intelligence, and that he wanted out due to lack of monetary compensation and slow promotion rates. The KGB took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. The Russians wanted anything they could get. According to John Shafstall, an army warrant officer and co-handler of Siegler in the operation, quote, they're garbage eaters. They'll take anything you can give them. We could have given them anything and they'd take it. And they'd tell Ralph, this is good. I mean, their philosophy is get everything you can and we'll sort it out later, end quote. Of course, they preferred classified information on missile systems, but nothing was off the table and protecting the agent was of the utmost importance. If obviously fraudulent information was given, the KGB could take notice and the agent likely would end up dead. The Army was in charge of all information that Siegler passed and determined what was to be passed through a committee that selected special information and approved its release. At times, material was so sensitive that the heads of the Intelligence Committee were the approving authorities. Just as an example, Siegler once passed his KGB handler documents on the fabrication and design of ceramic battle armor that the U.S. Army was considering using in future tank design. Decades later, it was found that the Soviets actually had built the tanks, though the armor failed and the tanks were destroyed. This is just one example, but it provides insight into what Siegler provided and oftentimes failed United States military technology experiments were the answer. Each time Ralph passed documents to the Soviets, he received a cash payment of 3,000 U.S. dollars. 
not exactly a hefty sum, but consider the time period, and then consider that, all total, Ralph received over $400,000 from the Soviets while operating as a double agent. Not all documents were passed through face-to-face meetups, however. There were two designated drop sites that Siegler used in El Paso, and one was in a cemetery behind a grave marker. Ralph's handlers saw something in Ralph that had them all convinced he didn't do it for the money. He genuinely enjoyed the thrill of being a spy and leading a double life. According to Schaffstahl, Siegler loved the adrenaline of the operation, completing the operation, and then provided boisterous debriefs to the intelligence community and his handlers. The attention and risk were like an addiction for the double agent. Ralph disregarded the money so much that the army eventually had to order him to spend some of it as it was beginning to look suspicious. They forced him to spend money on obvious things, and much of it went into large home improvement projects, things that could be easily observed. Eventually, Ralph had an entirely new house built, still in El Paso near his duty station at Fort Bliss. He continued his work, continued receiving payments, and took care of his wife, Ilse, and daughter, Karen. Between 1966 and 1968, Ralph Siegler met with the Soviets over two dozen times, all the while maintaining his role as an electronics sergeant at Fort Bliss. His fellow soldiers knew nothing of his extracurricular activities or his real rank of warrant officer. The base commander knew little more. According to Shostal, quote, He was the biggest thing that they had ever had. I mean, it was that way for years, and he was classified as a national asset. End quote. As many of you might know, PCS, or permanent change of station, is a common occurrence for service members, and it's not uncommon to be reassigned to a new location every three years or so. It's about how often I've moved. This was also true for the Sieglers. Staying in place for too long would be unusual, and could possibly alert the Russians that something wasn't quite right. To keep up appearances with the Russians, the U.S. Army moved the Siegler family back to Germany in 1968. Siegler's success as a double agent in the United States was largely the reason Germany was chosen. The intelligence community wanted to see if he could be equally successful in Europe. Ilse was naturally thrilled, as the assignment meant, at least for her, that she was going home. Siegler was assigned to an army command unit in Nuremberg, Germany, and the family moved at the end of 68. One late night, shortly after their move, Ilse watched from the window of their apartment in the city as a black Mercedes rolled up to the front of the building and men in civilian attire put Ralph into the car. When Ralph returned, his wife had questions. He revealed to her that he had been in Switzerland, and that he was not a courier, but an agent. Ralph further informed his wife that he was a secret agent, but declined to inform her of who he worked for, and what his past activities had been. It would seem that his informing her of his job would be a violation of any agreement he had with the Army or the FBI. However, this was not the case. In fact, the army wanted Ralph to take a much larger step in espionage and involve his family directly. The thought was that his family's involvement would only lend to the operation's legitimacy. This meant that his meetings abroad would look like weekend family trips and include his wife and daughter Karen. A real risk for Ralph. Nuremberg was a short-lived assignment, however. Ralph was frequently sent away. And like his assignment in El Paso, his direct leadership were unaware of his role as an agent. Calls from his command to his home were answered by his wife when he was away, and questions as to his whereabouts went unanswered, save for her reassurance that he was not at the house. 
his unit eventually marked him AWOL. His record would shortly expunge of this information, and Ralph, furious with his wife for mentioning that he was not home, was reassigned to Stuttgart where he could be closer to the base of his operations. Ilse's brother also lived in Stuttgart, adding more legitimacy to the operation. For the rest of 1968 and through 1969, the Sieglers frequently traveled on business trips while Ralph did his real work for the Army and the FBI. Ilse recalled trips to Zurich, Garmisch, and many other cities in Europe. However, her patience began to wear thin as she and Karen were pulled along in the wake of Ralph's unknown job. Tensions grew between the couple, and Ilse recalled Ralph becoming increasingly agitated and, very unlike the stoic man, nervous when returning home after a few outings. Then in 1970, Ralph received orders to Vietnam, but this was just a ruse. The orders were to get him back to Washington, D.C., where he was then rerouted again to El Paso. The Sieglers returned to their home. From 70 to 71, Ralph Siegler resumed his schedule of meeting the Russians in Mexico about once a month. It was a return to the status quo, but the situation was about to change permanently. 1972 was a year unlike all previous for Ralph and the Sieglers. It was the month of May and Ralph entered the family home after a mission. Ilse could clearly see that he was upset. After just a little probing, Ralph confided that he had been seen by some civilian co-workers at the airport in Mexico who inquired as to why he was there. He lied that he had been visiting his father in Pennsylvania and the men insisted that he go with them out for drinks. And he did. This was against the directions given to him. Ralph had been forbidden from making any stops between a mission and his home. But there was more. The army decided to further deepen Ralph's ties with the Russians by forcing him to reveal the existence of his mother in Czechoslovakia. The operation called for him to seek Russian assistance for his mother in exchange for more information. Early in the episode, it was mentioned that Ralph wanted nothing to do with his mother, and now he had been forced to involve her in the operation, and the Russians responded quickly. Over the course of the next few years, the Russians sent a female agent to Ralph's mother regularly, providing financial stability and bringing Ralph letters from his mother, thanking him for the cash flow. Ralph's mother also asked for photos of the family. Ralph's handlers, having seemingly overstepped, saw no issue. After all, Ralph's lack of affection for his mother had been made plain. According to Shostal, using his mother, quote, would have been Ralph's idea or the Bureau's, not ours that is the army, because we didn't think that the mother was that important to the whole case. Ralph didn't care for his mother at all. He had no feelings of motherly love or anything of a son's love for his mother. It didn't bother him. End quote. Ilse indicated in the book that Ralph didn't seem too concerned for his mother's safety and was merely annoyed with the communication that occurred as a byproduct. I'm accepting of that view given it lines up with Schafstall's thoughts on the matter. The operation appeared to be unraveling at both ends. The Russians were pushing for more information, and the FBI began to play a bit more loosely with Ralph. Shasta recalled that there was a notable change in Ralph's FBI handler, Joe Prasik. Prasik began taking the money given to Ralph by the Russians without counting it. He was reported to show disinterest in the operation as a whole. Though nothing has clearly been confirmed, what is known is that the Army and the FBI were both vying for better control of the operation an issue that had persisted since its inception. As for Ralph, the man felt stuck. He had been in the army for over 20 years now, and his relationship with Ilse was on the rocks. Though she encouraged him to get out, Ralph insisted that he could not, that he was too deep to turn away at this point. 
At the time of the book's writing, Schafstall was insistent that he was the agent with the greatest control over Siegler, despite Schafstall being Army and not FBI. Naturally, the FBI argued that they had remained in control throughout the entirety of the operation. Regardless of who had control, one thing is certain. The bureaucratic pissing contest only added to the operational tension for both Ralph and all those involved. But then the army made a power play and sent Ralph to one location where Soviet activity was practically non-existent and that the FBI could not touch him. Korea. Ralph was assigned to Korea from July 1972 until September 1973. During his time there, Ralph was anxious and attempted to lure Soviet contacts to Korea, though nothing panned out. He eventually returned to El Paso and, upon his return, was contacted by Shostal just a week later. Ralph was again to enter Mexico City and re-establish his contact with the Russians. He did as instructed, and his activities began once again. But things were changing, unraveling. Ilse was increasingly paranoid and believed she was being followed. Ralph consistently showed signs of stress and increased irritation, and the Russians requested something new, a meeting in Vienna rather than in Mexico. And so the family went to Europe. Ilse to Stuttgart to stay with her brother, and Ralph to Vienna to spend a few days with his Russian handlers. On the flight from Washington, Dulles, there were two other guests. One was Carlos Zapata, one of Ralph's American handlers, and a black-haired woman that his wife took notice of. The woman was KGB. The Europe trip was an eventful one. Ilse, of course, felt that she was tailed the entirety of the trip, and she likely was. After all, both sides were more than aware that Ralph was in Europe with his family. There was the potential for something to go wrong, but also the opportunity to learn something about Siegler through his family. Ilse and Karen went to Nuremberg, then to Stuttgart. Ralph informed his wife that he was to be gone for two to five days, depending on how the operation panned out. Arriving in Vienna, graphic image, checked into his hotel, and then he ran into trouble. He met up with his KGB handler in the wrong location, found himself caught in the rain for over an hour and then found that he was to go deeper into Soviet territory than anticipated. And at this point, his American handlers lost track of him. Just how deep he ended up in Soviet territory might surprise you. A few things happened next. First, Ralph was put to work decoding messages for the KGB. Next, he was taken to a room, and an old woman was escorted in. It turned out to be none other than his mother. Quite the shock for Ralph. Lastly, he found himself on a flight to Moscow. If you are curious as to who Ralph met with in Moscow, I think you'll find this answer pretty satisfying. We learn of his interactions in Moscow through none other than Ilse and his own personal journals. After the Vienna trip, the couple returned to El Paso. One day, while house cleaning, Ilse came across a suitcase containing an envelope. Inside were several 8x10 photographs, and in each was her husband but he was not alone. One photo was of Ralph with William E. Colby, the director of the CIA. And another, her husband was pictured with none other than Leonid Brezhnev, the leader of the Soviet Union. Two other photos stood out. One of Siegler with Yuri Andropov, the head of the KGB. And the other was of Siegler with George H.W. Bush when he was the director of the CIA. The man was clearly well-respected and prized among two of the world's most clandestine and powerful intelligence agencies. Naturally, Ilse had questions, and she brought them to Ralph when he came home. 
The photo provided Ilse with the real depth of Ralph's involvement in the world of Cold War espionage. Ilse turned the photos over to the Army in 1976, and they were never returned. Miss Siegler attempted to have them returned years later through a FOIA request, or Freedom of Information Act, but the Army classified the photo secret and the request was denied. But let's not get too far ahead yet. Ralph continued to show signs of increased stress and his relationship with Ilse deteriorated further. The man was reaching a breaking point. His paranoia was at an all-time high. He confided that he was being followed. In November 1975, he was shortly transferred to White Sands Missile Range in Fort Bliss to attend courses in improving his Morse code. Shostal had noticed he was struggling to decipher coded messages from the Russians. He returned in time for Christmas, but his demeanor had not improved. Instead, it had worsened. He spoke of his distrust for handlers on both the Russian and American side. He had no friends. According to Shostal, Ralph had been in the business for too long. Further, Shostal was of the opinion that Joe Prasik of the FBI had no interest left in the Siegler operation. Ralph was coming up on 30 years of Army service and had plans to retire, though he made it clear that he did not wish to terminate his work as a double agent after his official retirement. His nerves were getting the best of him, and he accepted fake IDs for himself and his family from the Russians. Apparently, he frequently voiced concern that he would be caught, and the Russians, wanting to reassure their top man, created Canadian identities for the Sieglers. These were never used, but showed just how much the Russians wished to protect their asset. Canada will also be a topic of interest in the episode's conclusion, so keep that in the back of your mind. In a world in which no one can be trusted, it would be difficult to discern who Siegler was siding with. A question that Shostal admits to asking is worth consideration. Was Siegler still their man, or had he been turned? January 1976 was a pivotal time and some decisions were made that set a concrete course in which the end of this story would play out. Siegler needed to take some leave. Shostal was of the opinion it would be good for him and pushed for a vacation. Siegler said San Francisco sounded nice as he had always wanted to see it. He also was due for a routine polygraph to ensure he hadn't turned. Leave and the polygraph were scheduled for March of 1976, but it wasn't all relaxation. Naturally, it was arranged that Siegler met with the Russians in San Francisco. On March 23, 1976, he checked into the Vagabond Hotel. It was not a nice part of town, but he requested it specifically. Later in April, a set of blueprints for the Vagabond Hotel were found in Siegler's house. To this day, what Siegler did in that hotel and why he had the blueprints are entirely unknown. Two days later on the 25th, Ralph sat down with Odell Lester King, a polygraph examiner with Army Intelligence out of Fort Meade. Schaffstahl recalls that Siegler seemed to have no concern about his test. Routine questions were asked to establish a baseline. Questions like, is today March 25th, 1976? Are you in the United States Army? Have you ever illegally disposed of PX or post-exchange items? 
and others of the sort. The test was interrupted for lunch. After lunch, things took a turn. The test was resumed and Siegler was asked, quote, Did you tell the Soviets anything that you haven't told us? Reportedly, the needles began bouncing, indicating deception. King sat down with Ralph and Shostall and naturally had questions for Ralph. The double agent assured Shostall that he had not disclosed any unauthorized information to the Soviets. All he could say was that he was feeling guilty about something, though he was unsure of what. I found this really interesting. Here we have a successful agent with nearly 30 years of army service. Siegler was self-assured, stoic, hell, he seemed to have ice in his veins. It was part of why they recruited him for the job. But at this moment, he found himself feeling guilty and he had no idea as to why. This is not the Ralph Siegler that we were first introduced to. It was agreed that Ralph would take the night off in his hotel room and work on figuring out the issue. Once he left, Shostal called his boss, Noel Jones at Army Intelligence Fort Meade. All he said was, we're having a problem with graphic image. Jones told Shostal he was on his way out to San Francisco. Jones ran the issue up the chain immediately, and Army Intelligence at Fort Meade went into panic mode. After all, their most valuable and trusted agent couldn't pass a simple routine polygraph. The feeling in the intelligence community was that heads were gonna roll. The next day, March 26th, testing resumed. By lunch break, the polygraph was still showing deception from Ralph. Based on the line of questioning, it was clear that the deception was centered around the unauthorized disclosure of Ralph's involvement in intelligence work and possibly the unauthorized disclosure of secret information to the Soviets. Graphic image continued to display his typical stubbornness and no shortage of stress. During the testing, Ralph continuously drank beer, although he was advised by King not to. His testing continued till about 4.30 that afternoon, with Siegler showing no signs of improvement in his polygraph results or his beer consumption. In the early evening, Ralph went to his room and Shostal's boss, Noel Jones, walked in. Ralph was both surprised and worried at Jones's presence. Rather than take a friendly approach, as he was used to with Shostal, Jones was firm and admonished the double agent, telling him to consider all that the army had done for him and to consider the consequences were he withholding any information. Ralph offered nothing new, but did inquire as to whether the operation was to be canceled. Jones told him he could consider the operation suspended and left him for the night. It was a Friday night when Jones met with Ralph, and that same night, Ralph called Ilsay and filled her in on the details. Just a few. One particular thing that was mentioned was that he was to meet with the Russians that night and that this meeting was unknown to Shostal or the army. Sort of indicates why the polygraph, perhaps, was showing deception. Ralph dressed nicely and met with the KGB. According to a journal that he kept, he was questioned about his domestic situation during the meeting. He informed his KGB handlers that he enjoyed working for them and he really enjoyed the payments. But he further went on to ask what it was like being in the KGB. Not much else is recorded in his journal, 
but this sounds a little bit like expressed interest in fully converting to the other side. On Saturday morning, the 27th, Siegler was informed that further testing would be a moot point and that he was to return to El Paso. Odell King mentioned he was certain he would see Ralph again soon at Fort Meade and left. Shostall assured his double agent that the Army was there to work with Ralph and get to the bottom of things. He further noted in the book, that being Shostall, that he was all too aware that Ralph was withholding information and that he was determined to discover just what that was. The Army was to get its answers. After the disastrous trip to San Francisco, Ralph Siegler had just one more assignment. He returned home, visibly upset. Shostall, King, and Jones all returned to Fort Meade. Both the handlers and the double agent were racking their brains trying to determine the cause of the polygraph results. While Fort Meade looked into Ralph's past and his previous assignments, Ralph spent time in self-reflection. In a pocket journal later recovered from the Siegler home, Ralph had made an entry following the polygraph and his return to El Paso, in which he listed problems that may have contributed to his failing the test. In a bulleted list, Ralph wrote the following. Money. Gold coin. And there was a box drawn around this entry. Slip of tongue. Manual. Talked of classified items. Cannot remember details. Feeling guilty. Ashamed of not being able to hold liquor. Afraid? Why the trace? According to the book, all of the entries listed were either incidents already known to the Army or that Ralph admitted while in San Francisco. Jostow claims that the money entry was specific to the money being sent to Ralph's mother, something that we all know by this point he did not like. Gold coin was specific to an incident in which the KGB gave Ralph gold coins, which he kept from the Army out of fear that they would be taken away. But Shostall stated that the biggest concern to the Army was Ralph's tendency to spill his guts when he had too much to drink. But the investigation needed to move forward, and Ralph needed to move forward with his retirement. While Army Intelligence at Meade worked on getting their agent placed on leave to supposedly visit his father in Pennsylvania, Ralph was working on his retirement physical. Interesting fact about that. Ralph stole a copy of that physical from Fort Bliss, which showed he was in great health, ripped up the carpet in his car, hid the file under the carpet, and re-glued it to the floorboard. Speculation was that Ralph did this out of paranoia and wanted unedited proof that, should something happen to him, he was perfectly healthy. It was clear that Ralph felt his time was limited and the walls were closing in. Ralph Siegler informed his command at Fort Bliss that he was going to be on leave but planned to return for routine assignment on April the 7th. His leave was planned for April 4th through the 10th. He further informed Ilse that she could expect him back on the 7th around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And so on the 4th, he made his way to the airport, with Ilse driving him in the family car. His wife noted three different vehicles tailing them at various times all the way to the airport. Ralph got out of the car, flew to Baltimore-Washington Friendship with a round-trip ticket for a return to El Paso on the 7th, the same date that he briefed his wife and his superiors. Ilse, however, knew nothing about the polygraph in San Francisco or that he was to take another in Fort Meade. The double agent had a hotel room booked at the Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge, about 30 minutes from Fort Meade. 
Polygraph testing could not happen on post, and Ralph was to stay far from it. Army intelligence believed that Fort Meade had been infiltrated by the Soviets, and Siegler's presence on post would blow the whole operation. On the morning of April 5th, Schafstall met with Ralph and took him to another room in the same hotel in which he was staying. Waiting inside was none other than Odell King, the polygraph examiner from San Francisco. Ralph seemed confident and assured both men he was prepared to pass the test. The testing began, as all previous tests had, with simple control questions. But once the questions transitioned again into his meetings with the Soviets, Ralph became emotional, noticeably so, and the polygraph again indicated deception. This testing went on for over six hours before King terminated the testing, traveled to Fort Meade, and informed superiors of the results. In the meantime, Ralph sat down with Shostal and the two went over every assignment the double agent had worked on since the operation began. There appeared to be no issue with his conduct until he said something that Shostal was not prepared for. Siegler was forbidden to keep any sort of notes on the operation and revealed that he kept personal notes and journals of every meeting since the operation's inception. Fort Meade was in an uproar over the results and believed that Shostal and Siegler had become too close. So they sent in a new man to question the potentially rogue agent. Shostal left the hotel and returned to Fort Meade. He never saw Ralph Siegler again. The new man was assigned as Ralph's project officer. His name was Louis R. Martel. He had met Ralph once in 1974, just after his Vienna trip. Martel, known as Lou, was well-liked and seemed the best man for the job. So on April 6th, he was taken to Howard Johnson's by Noel Jones to meet the agent. Siegler was surprised and confused, then informed that his new point of contact out of Fort Meade was to be Lou. Discussion about the polygraph began immediately. Jones pressed Ralph throughout the day about his responses. He assured Ralph that he was not going to get into any trouble and that any damage done was not irreparable, that he could even get Ralph a letter of immunity. It wasn't until the evening that Siegler confessed he had been doing work with the Soviets, ordered by the FBI, and that the Army didn't know anything about it. Jones was furious with the FBI, but elated that this was seemingly the issue with the polygraph. It appeared that it was the FBI once again flexing positional liberties and keeping the Army in the dark. But in interviews, Lou later revealed that he believed that Ralph was actually playing both sides. Two major events occurred the following day on April 8th. First, Shostal flew to El Paso as it was determined that Ralph's notes on past operations needed to be secured. Second, more polygraph testing. Ralph divulged to Odell King all that he had told Noel. But his story showed some inconsistencies and the polygraph test came back as invalid. Basically, there were too many inconsistencies and the answers could not be trusted. Even with the baseline questioning, it was hard to tell what was true and what was false. It was after this that Ralph became irrational and truly inconsistent in all of his lines of questioning. They broke for lunch for just one hour, and when King and Siegler met again, the double agent denied all of his previous statements. King was floored. Jones was livid. Ralph's waffling continued on and off in the days to come, and he did not return home on the 7th as promised. His notes, however, were confiscated in El Paso, and he continued to be questioned all while his erratic behavior continued and his attitude worsened. Ralph clearly wasn't sleeping much. 
He looked worn, half crazed, and at times aloof. The stoic hard man had cracked. His final polygraph was administered on the 13th of April in the same hotel by the same examiner. Again, the army had reassured Ralph that he was of value to them, and they only wanted to clear up the situation. None of that mattered. The polygraph again showed that Ralph Siegler was lying. King notified Jones and further testing was called off. King left. For him, it was also the last time that he saw Ralph. The army then decided on a new approach. Pointed and hostile interrogation. Intelligence at Fort Meade had a secret weapon used only for the most critical cases. That secret weapon's name was Donald J. Drake, better known as the Duke. Drake was over six feet tall, had a dark complexion and a commanding voice. He was known for his big handlebar mustache and the big cigars that always hung out the side of his mouth. The Duke was the best at what he did. Though on leave, he agreed to return early and on the 14th, he was ready to interrogate Siegler. Siegler was to be picked up from the hotel with no notice or explanation as to what was coming. The shift in approach was sure to generate desired results, but the 14th never arrived for Ralph. While Fort Meade was contacting the Duke, Ralph was calling his daughter Karen. Now 17 years old, Karen was home alone while her mother was at work in a department store. Ralph called home, Karen answered, and he began asking her how she was. He asked her what her plans for the future were. He began to say something else, and then the line went dead. Afraid, she called her mother. Ilse disregarded her daughter's concern as she was working with a customer. But then Ralph called. According to Ilse, his voice sounded thick, panicked. He told her to take the phone to a place where no one would overhear anything. He informed her a letter was to arrive at the house for her. And then he told her, quote, I want you to get a respectable lawyer. Maybe your boss can recommend one for you. And sue the United States Army. I am dying. I never lied, end quote. To Ilse, it was clear that Ralph had snapped, but she believed him. He sounded as if he were crying. Then the phone went dead again. All too aware that her greatest fears were playing out in that very moment, Ilse Siegler contacted nearly every officer in Ralph's chain of command, screaming and insisting that he had been kidnapped. She threatened to call the Pentagon. She attempted to reach his handlers. Ilse called anyone remotely involved and stated that they were killing Ralph. Word quickly reached Lou Martel and Noel Jones. Believing that this was an overreaction to his leave having been extended and the misdate of the 7th having passed nearly a week earlier, the two men decided a wellness check at Ralph's hotel was necessary. Martel and the Duke were the two men that made the drive to Ralph's hotel. They telephoned his room, but got no answer. They discussed the possibility that Ralph was in the hotel bar, or perhaps just passed out in his room. When neither man could find him at the bar, Lou Martel went to the hotel desk and beseeched the clerk to allow a check 
for health and wellness on Ralph and his room. The desk clerk, William Henry Chapman, agreed to escort Lou to Ralph in room 326. It was clear when they arrived that someone had to have been in there. After all, there was a light that could be seen to the people. But when they knocked, the door did not open. And when they tried to open it using the hotel key, they couldn't get it open either. The deadbolt had been activated from the inside. There was a separate tool for that, and Chapman opened the door after retrieving it. Lying face down on green shag carpet, his feet toward the door was graphic image, the Army's greatest active double agent. The clerk commented that Siegler had clearly passed out, but Lou Martell saw the stripped wires from the lamp wrapped around each of Siegler's arms just above the elbows. He also spotted the blood oozing from Siegler's head. Martell said, Passed out? Hell, he's dead. Get an ambulance. Get a doctor. At 11 p.m. on April 13, 1976, Lou Martell made a phone call that no one expected. The phone rang, and Jones answered. You're not going to believe this, but Graphic Image is dead. Jones was in shock, but began making his way to the hotel immediately. Lou searched the room. It was spotless. There were no beer bottles, no liquor bottles. All of Ralph's personal belongings were present. There was no sign of struggle. All that was out of place was Ralph's body and a note written in Ralph's own hand. It read, I don't know what I'm guilty of. Then why the positive responses? Acting? Lying? Don't know the difference? Too bad. I've given up all hope. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I tried too hard. I'm dead. Call home. 915-751-8171. Notify John. 677-5801-5800. If you're anything like me, you're asking what the hell is going on at this point. Here we've got a man who has been working as a double agent for the FBI and the Army for years, coming up on 30 years of service and looking at retirement. He can't pass a polygraph test to save his life, has shown clear signs of a mental breakdown. He's called home in a panic, and he says to his wife that the Army is killing him, that he's dying, and then a short time later is found dead, with stripped lamp wires wrapped around his arms. He's bleeding from the head, and the room is spotless with no sign of a struggle. Oh, and then toss in the suicide note to muddy the waters just a little bit more. Let's look more into the circumstances surrounding his death. The police show up, and the big wigs from Fort Meade Intelligence are on scene shortly after. There are no signs of foul play. There's an adjoining room, room 324, but the deadbolt is engaged on that side. Could someone have been in that room and killed Ralph? It's unclear at this time, so let's keep going. The lamp between the two beds in Siegler's room was on, but six feet of the wire had been removed and the bare end stuck back into the outlet, powering the lamp. Those six feet of missing wire had been removed, were split, stripped of insulation, and wrapped around Siegler's arms. Next to the inside door to room 324 were two chairs stacked on top of each other with Ralph's belt looped around the top. The room is well kept, but there are some definite oddities. Siegler was officially pronounced dead at 12.10 a.m. on April 14th. Blood was leaking from his nose, 
and when they moved the body, they found a Holiday Inn paper cup crushed in his right hand. The body was taken away for autopsy. The next day, Ilse and Karen are notified. Ilse was irate. Colonel Lou Flair, Captain Cardwell, and Chaplain Miller were sent to inform Miss Siegler of her husband's death. They informed her that she should sit down before breaking any news, but she spared them the hassle, yelling, What, you want to tell me? My husband is dead? I know he is dead. He called and told me he is dying. Her grammar and English suffered as she became more indignant, the native German in her voice thickening as they explained he had committed suicide by electrocution. Ilse denied the idea of suicide until her own death. She denied any drinking problems or serious marital issues when they confronted her with questions or accusations of those issues. Ilse insisted that her husband was dead due to the actions of the army and the FBI alone. But what evidence existed to support the claims beyond his own warnings? After all, he seemed to be half out of his mind. And what of the letter that he had said was to arrive for her? Well, it eventually came. The letter was handwritten on Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge stationery and dated 10 April 1976, three days before Ralph's body was found. The letter was a bit erratic, and it read, Dear Ilse, should anything happen to me, suicide, death, or accident, sue the United States Army for being the cause, naming specifically the following as defendants. Ralph then listed two two-star generals, Colonel Grimes out of Fort Meade, his friend John Schaffstall, Major Noel Jones, Carlos Zapata, and Joe Prasic. He further instructed her to request all papers that had been retrieved by John Schaffstall on 9 April be returned to Ilse. What is odd is that in this letter, he spelled the names of Schaffstall, Grimes, and Prasic incorrectly. Further, he listed Joe Prasic's number but had it written upside down? Was it written while he was intoxicated? Under duress? Was his mind slipping? I don't think we'll ever have the answers to those questions. In interviews after his death, John Schaffstall remained confused by Siegler's suicide note and letter. Schaffstall stated, quote, Well, he says this suicide, death, or accident. Most people would say in case I die or have an accident. But to write suicide, and then everybody says it was a suicide, you wonder if somebody had him write it. Because he spells the name wrong in a lot of them. My name is spelled wrong, and I know he'd known how to spell that. And he said something about notify John. Of course, at that point, I always said, well, I wonder why he's suing me, and then also wants Ilse to notify me. He tells her to sue me, and then after all this, he writes about his problems. Notify John. Why? And why didn't they notify me? It's difficult to follow John's line of thinking, and you can tell just from the quote alone that he's clearly confused and has some emotions about it, and his questions are valid, but they shed some doubt on the idea of a suicide. There is more to it than that, however. Ralph's body was shipped to El Paso for the funeral. When Ilse and Karen went to privately view Ralph, they were stunned. First off, it didn't look like Ralph, and they noticed a couple disturbing details. It seemed that Ralph had been beaten. He had false eyelashes on his right eye due to his own being missing. He had a cut on the right side of his face. There was a deep hole that had been covered in the center of his forehead. His nose had been broken. He still had dried blood on the back of his head. And the teeth in his lower jaw were knocked out. 
His partial upper plate was missing. His arms were scarred. Dozens of needle marks were evident on his arms and his legs. His hands were so damaged that they had to put gloves on him, as mortuary makeup could not cover it up. For a man who had supposedly committed suicide, his body told a story of torture. Ilse and the attorney that she ended up hiring, Tom Jennings, went to Fort Meade on April 26 and requested a briefing on the graphic image operation and Ralph's death. It was determined in the police report that Ralph had attempted to strap himself into the two chairs with his belt and electrocute himself using the wires found around his arms. The belt was said to have prevented his body from being thrown from the chairs. However, in the police report, it states that the belt was too short so that when Siegler flipped a power switch, he was thrown from the chairs. It was determined that the voltage threw him, and he landed face down, damaging his right cheek and his forehead. The police report goes on to say that the burns were from the continued voltage that was then conducted through blood pulling around him. The broken nose was supposed to have also been from his face striking the floor of the hotel. But why did Siegler move hotels? Remember, he was found in a Holiday Inn, which is not where he originally checked in. There is no answer to that question. The Army conducted its own investigation into Siegler's death, and on June 22, 1976, sent Miss Siegler a letter with their findings. The Army had concluded that Ralph was acutely and severely depressed and that he considered suicide for a few hours before acting on impulse. Further, the Army stated that his self-destruction was a symptom of his depressive illness. The letter ended stating that he had lost the, quote, ability to adhere to usual standards of behavior. Talk about a diplomatically cold answer. The Inspector General's report was no better and concluded on June 11th, stating that, quote, Ralph Joseph Siegler died a suicide from self-electrocution. To make matters worse, a report indicated that all interactions had with Miss Siegler resulted in her treating Army personnel in a brusque, demanding manner, demanding her desire to sue the Army and all individuals concerned. She was given satisfactory explanation to the questions she had posed. Ilse Siegler was regarded as a hysterical and belligerent spouse. All military intelligence personnel were found to be in no way responsible for Ralph Siegler's death and that the motive for his suicide was guilt at having furnished unauthorized information to the Soviets. Ilse refused to give up. Her husband's last wish was that she sue the army and get answers. Having hired a private investigator, a man by the name of Fred Duval, the two went to work. Duval had a few pieces of evidence at his disposal and took them to an independent pathologist. The pathologist reviewed the autopsy and the evidence and concluded that blood seepage from electrocution only occurs orally. Further, the blood-soaked shirt that was found on Siegler's body contained two types of typo blood. One was the same as Ralph's. The other was not. Also found were a pair of boxer shorts, which Ralph had been wearing at the time of his death, supposedly. But there were some discrepancies with those. Specifically, that when folded, the bloodstains on the top of the boxer shorts matched the bloodstains on the bottom. It was concluded that the boxer shorts were used to wipe up blood, fold it up, and Ralph's clothes were changed. The bloody clothes had been placed on his fresh corpse. John Schafstahl went to his grave without knowing what happened to Ralph Siegler. John stated, I really don't think the Army knows what happened. We never heard from the Bureau. When things go bad, 
Ibiro takes a run. What became clear to John in the years that followed Ziegler's death was that the Army truly was in the dark regarding graphic images assignments. Colonel Grimes arrived at the same conclusion himself. They had no knowledge of his San Francisco meetings with the Russians, although the Army was there. They knew little of some of his deeper incursions into Mexico and Europe. The whole idea that the FBI was truly running the show became more and more apparent, and the army men who handled Ralph Siegler merely facilitated the double agent's earliest forays into espionage. Like Siegler was used as a pawn, so too was the army used by the FBI. After his death, the FBI cut all ties with the graphic image operation and refused to ever acknowledge any role. However, there is a 3,000-page FBI file on Siegler's death alone, and it's been classified as secret. That's quite a hefty file for a group that supposedly had nothing to do with Ralph Siegler. The writers of the book Widows made the following conclusion, that Ralph Siegler was being used by the FBI in an attempt to capture a man labeled as an illegal. An illegal refers to the most respected and revered KGB officers. These are men and women trained to enter the United States illegally and infiltrate society. They live in communities across the United States, taking on false identities and acting in the role of an average American citizen. They're sleeper agents. They're the true insider threats. Soviet agents then were known as illegals, and Russian agents now are still known by the same name. So who was the illegal? It was a Czechoslovakian-born man named Ludek Zemanek. Ralph was also Czech. Is that a coincidence? Well, it turns out, no. After Russia's so-called liberation of Czechoslovakia from Germany, Ludek became a devout communist. He studied Marxist-Leninist ideology and was recruited at a young age by the KGB to be trained as an illegal. His name was changed to Rudolf Hermann, an identity that once belonged to a German who had died in the Soviet Union in 1943. He began working in Frankfurt, Germany, and he and his wife lived successfully as Germans for a time. Then, in 1961, the Hermans were given orders by the KGB to visit Canada and the United States, posing as tourists. Feeling comfortable that they could fit in, the two applied for visas to begin working in Canada. They moved to Toronto and opened Delhi. From hard-working Germans to hard-working Canadians, the two did well and felt that emigrating to the U.S. was more than possible. Now, remember those Canadian IDs mentioned earlier for the Sieglers? This is where things start to come full circle. In 1967, the Hermans became Canadian citizens, and just 10 days later, they obtained visas to move to the United States. In 1967, the FBI caught on to the Hermans. They moved to Hartsdale, New York in 1968 and opened a business that partnered with IBM. But on the side, Herman was a KGB operative. Part of his orders included servicing drop sites near United States military bases. The drop sites were necessary as the Soviets had infiltrated U.S. bases, such as Fort Meade. And the sites were how communication was relayed. Two of Rudolf Herman's long-term drop sites were found to be at Fort Bliss in El Paso, both of which were used by none other than Ralph Siegler. Remember the grave marker that I mentioned earlier? Well, both men used it. In 1977, one year after Siegler's death, Rudolf Herman was confronted by the FBI. He willingly turned himself in, and they offered him amnesty under the condition that he were to work for them as a double agent. His only requirement was that he was not made to kill anyone. 
and both parties agreed. The new double agent was questioned and sodium pentothal administered to enable greater sharing of information. During the interrogation, it was found that he and Siegler used the same drop sites and reported to the same Soviet handlers in Mexico City. Rudolf Herman was Siegler's unknown counterpart. Neither knew who the other was, but Ralph and Rudolph had spoken on the phone multiple times to confirm drops and exchange information. All Army personnel involved with the graphic image operation stand firm in their belief that Siegler had never truly turned to the Russians. Rather, that his polygraphs were a result of his overuse and clandestine efforts ordered by the FBI. For Colonel Grimes, Noel Jones, and John Shostall, Siegler was, and remained, until his death, their man. For the FBI, Ralph Siegler will always be the first FBI and Army Offensive Counterintelligence agent successful in combating Soviet espionage and United States history. But who killed him? Did the FBI use him to the point of disposal? Did Ralph Siegler finally snap under pressure and kill himself in a dramatic and brutal act of drunken impulse? For the authors of Widows, it was neither. On the contrary, the writers argue that Siegler was tortured and murdered by none other than the KGB. According to an unnamed FBI source, the postmortem contains an admission that Ralph Siegler was in fact being used to support the Herman operation. The army was kept in the dark about what Siegler's true function was. The argument made is that the KGB became aware of Ralph's growing knowledge of Herman and were afraid he was going to crack. His erratic behavior was being observed by more than just the army and the FBI, after all. A heavy interrogation was just what was needed to force Siegler to crack and spill his guts about his Soviet contacts, that being Rudolf Herman. How odd is it that Fort Meade believed they had been infiltrated and that same day that the hostile interrogation was decided upon, Ralph Siegler was found dead with apparent signs of torture. The writers of Widows write the following in their book. We believe there is a chance Ralph may have been lured to a meeting. Since Louis Martel noted no smell of burnt flesh in Ralph's room, and since there was no blown circuits or even dim lights noted by other guests, Ralph was probably not electrocuted in that room. The KGB killer, or killers, may have tortured Siegler at another location and forced him to make the phone calls to his daughter and wife and write the letter to Ilse, instructing her to sue the army. It would explain the liquor found in his system, but not in the motel room, and the evidence of beatings on his face. Injuries the medical examiner decided were far too extensive to come from a fall onto a heavily padded shag carpet. All of the details pertaining to the death of Ralph Siegler will likely never be fully known. But the questions remain. What, if anything, did the Army have to gain from Siegler's death? What did the FBI have to gain? They knew of and were tracking Rudolf Herman and had been since 1967. The greatest risk and potential for loss lay with the KGB, and in the end, they lost both of their men. Who was the leak in the Fort Meade office? How did the Soviets learn of the pending interrogation? Noel Jones believes he has the answer, and the FBI all but confirmed it with the arrest of a man named Richard A. Smith in 1983. Smith had met Jones years before in Tokyo as an enlisted man. Smith was smart, a real go-getter, and Jones wanted him at the meat office. Smith had already done work with the CIA and seemed a good fit. He was active during most of the graphic image operation and was in the office the week that Ralph Siegler was killed. 
Smith was made head of a San Francisco office by Jones in 1980, but suddenly quit six months later and seemingly disappeared. That is until 1983, when he was arrested by the FBI for disclosing classified information to the Soviets. In that information were the names of six Army double agents. Unfortunately, Smith got off as it was determined in court that he released the names under orders from the FBI. So who killed Ralph Siegler? I suppose you could say the KGB did. You could say Richard A. Smith did. But in doing so, didn't the FBI also kill Ralph Siegler? The authors of Widows did an amazing job of telling an amazing story and digging deep and drawing their conclusions. The rest is left for you, the listener, to decide. But I find their conclusion pretty damn convincing. All right, that'll do it for Hardtack episode 31, Widows Part 1, Who Killed Ralph Siegler? This one was lengthy and the research much heavier than I had anticipated, but I gotta be honest, I had a damn good time with it. I hope you all enjoyed it, and if you weren't already intrigued with espionage and Cold War era spycraft, maybe this will send you down your own rabbit hole. Now, tune in next week as we visit World War I in Hardtack Episode 32, The Mystery of Celtic Wood, where we will try to answer the question of where the men of the 10th Battalion, 1st Australian Division, disappeared to. Please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe on whichever platform you use to consume your hardtack. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And remember to keep your hardtack dry. Dry.